0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to kindness in healthcare, nowhere is it more important than with patients being treated for cancer. The aim of healthcare is healing, but healing may mean different things for different people depending on their diagnosis.
2: On today's program, we'll learn more about health delivery and the importance of kindness and healing from an industry expert.
1: Also on the program, preventing wrist injuries in tennis players.
2: And the Life Sciences Incubator at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. That's this week's program, up next.
1: Tracy, there are lots of people who come to the Mayo Clinic every day, but there are not many who know as much about our institution as Dr. Lynn Barry. As a visiting scientist at the Mayo Clinic in 2001, 2002, he conducted an in-depth research study of healthcare service and ended up writing a book. It was called Management Lessons from Mayo Clinic, along with the former director of marketing at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Kent Seltman. Now, Dr. Berry is a university distinguished professor of marketing, regents professor, and holds the MB Zale chair in retailing and marketing leadership in the Mays Business School at Texas A&M University.
2: Big deal. Yes, Dr. Berry has written 10 books in all and is the author of numerous academic articles and an invited lecturer throughout the world. He's received more honors and awards for his contributions than we have time to mention. Dr. Berry has a particular interest in cancer patients and their care, and we are privileged to have him as our guest on Mayo Clinic Radio. Welcome to the program, Dr. Berry. Thank you.
1: Dr. Barry, nice to see you. Mm -hmm. So tell us why you're in Rochester. I I hope for nothing. uh, Malady. (laughs) No, I'm actually in Rochester because uh,
3: tonight is the annual Mayberry Service Excellence Award. Mayberry is uh, my late mother, and uh, Mm -hmm. it's an award that I created to honor my mother's memory, as well as to celebrate the uh, incredible service that I I saw when I studied here at Mayo Clinic.
2: Why are you? What's your particular interest in cancer patients and that care? In
3: in cancer affects us all um, sooner or later, directly or indirectly. Cancer touches us all, and I've been studying healthcare for almost twenty years now. I started at the Mayo Clinic with my uh, visiting. Um, visiting research project uh, at the Mayo Clinic, and uh, started to get interested in cancer. And at this stage of my career, I just feel that I can make a contribution to improving the, the service experience that patients and their families uh, undergo when, when, they, when cancer strikes. Cancer is a life-changing experience. It may not be life-ending, but it's always life-changing, and it impacts the family, not just the patient. So I'm trying to help uh, smooth the path that cancer families go through.
1: So tell us about this uh, article uh, that you wrote in, uh, I think it was 2017, and it was called The Role of Kindness in Cancer Care. Why'd you write that article? I wrote that article
3: because when cancer strikes, Tom, um, it's, a, it's an emotional set of diseases and c- true kindness can help defuse the emotional intensity that accompanies cancer. True kindness can go a long way to calming the patient, to giving the patient confidence, to giving the family confidence uh, about the path that they're underway. Uh, what do
2: you mean by true kindness? What are some of the examples of that?
3: Well, one f- form of of true kindness is is true listening. I call it deep listening in the article, which I wrote with, with collaborators, with uh, collab, uh, co-authors. Uh, deep listening or true listening is is being present for the patient, not being distracted, and taking the time to find out what really matters to the patient, their values, their preferences, and taking the time to hear
1: the patient's story.
3: That's kindness and too often, it's in short supply in healthcare.
1: Other ways that the healthcare team
3: can, can show kindness. Generosity. Uh, generous acts is the term that we use in the article. It's, uh, generous acts often manifest themselves in terms of just extra effort. It's often something that seems quite small or unimportant maybe to the clinician. To the nurse, the doctor, or the administrative assistant, or the desk attendant, but it means a ton to someone who's under tremendous emotional stress, uh, generosity. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of my friend's child uh, has uh, brain cancer, has gone through a lot of treatment, and when he would get his regular radiation treatments, he needed to go under... A, anesthesia. He was four years old. Mm. And, uh, and that, of course, was frightening for him. And so uh, his mom asked, can my child sit on my lap when you put him under anesthesia? He'll be more comfortable that way. And they did that. And then when he would wake up from an, uh, anesthesia, He'd wake up without a shirt on, and that upset him. So the clinical team would always put a shirt on before he would wake up. A very simple act, but it meant a lot to the family.
1: So, how do you? I think I totally agree with everything that you say, but how do you teach a culture of kindness to a, a medical institution, no matter which one? I mean, it seems, you're talking about the whole healthcare team, and it seems like there are people on the healthcare team who are kind just by nature, and some not so much. So, how do you teach everybody on the healthcare team this kindness concept? It starts with being a kind organization. Uh, you can't be
3: uh, an unkind organization and treat your employees unkindly, and create a culture of kindness. Uh, so it starts at the top. Pretty it much. starts at the top. Another key is to try your best to hire kind people in the first place.
1: That Not helps, always easy.
3: That helps a lot, and and uh, and also not tolerating offensive behavior on the part of the staff. So if you make a mistake in the hiring and you have someone that's rude, that's unkind, either to their colleagues or to the patients or both, families, you need to uh, take that person out of the organization. Have the courage to do that. To create a kind culture, everybody needs to play their role. Everybody's responsible. Everybody has to be a role model for kindness. And then it becomes more
1: uh, infectious and it spreads into the culture. If someone is not kind to a patient or to a family, whose job is it, whose responsibility is it to take that person aside and and talk to them about kindness? I mean, that's so difficult. Yes,
3: hopefully um, a trusted colleague, who, uh, perhaps a friend, who can take someone by the, the shoulder into a private space and say, you know, uh, Joe, uh, there was a, there's a better way to have handled the situation that I just observed. And uh, I hope you don't mind, but I'd like to talk to you about that. Because it would have meant so much to the patient had you handled the situation differently. And I think it would have meant more to you in reflecting on the day, when you think back on the day today. Uh, so we need mentors to build a culture of kindness. We need role models, not only the top, but in the middle. Because in a big organization such as Mayo Clinic, everybody works for middle management. They don't work for the CEO, they work for their supervisor, their immediate supervisor on the
1: day-to-day basis. Who did you want to read this article? I mean, is this for everybody on the healthcare care team? I, I wanted uh, clinicians in
3: particular to read this article because it's easy to take for granted. I'm a kind person, but the pressures of the day in healthcare, care, um, all the external forces and, and management asking you to see more and more patients and a full waiting room and you're running behind, it's it's easy to fall into uh, a form of abruptness, uh, a form of impersonalization uh, that isn't really reflective of kindness, and kindness can be so important uh, to the patient and the family,
1: particularly if cancer is the diagnosis.
3: Cancer is the scariest word I think in all of healthcare it is the scariest word. Can I tell one more story about kindness? Okay. Is it okay? Sure. So this is a story about timely care. This is also another form of kindness we write about is timeliness of care. Because when patients are really stressed and emotionally uh, uptight, they're waiting for an appointment, they're waiting for a test result, Timeliness is, 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 is critical. Uh, undue waiting is suffering. And so one of the patients I interviewed in my research on cancer care was a patient that was treated here at the Mayo Clinic. And the patient had had surgery for his cancer and had an appointment the very next day uh, with his surgeon uh, to review the lab results and the imaging that had been done the day before. And he was particularly nervous the night before this appointment. Are they gonna find some cancer again? He was really upset, he just couldn't function that night. And just before dinner, he got an email from his surgeon. And his surgeons in the email said, all the tests look good. That was such a kind act. I wanted to tell this story because that
1: surgeon was you, Tom. I'm so glad we invited him. Is that him. true? <laughs> he probably, is. Yes. Oh Dr. My Len gosh. Berry, a distinguished professor of marketing at Texas A&M University and an expert on health care delivery. We've been talking about the importance of kindness in the care of patients who have cancer. And now we want to talk about a different article that Dr. Berry has also written, and it's called healing mm-hmm. Putting Healing Back at the Center of Healthcare." Putting Healing Back at the Center of Health Care with co-author Dr. Raina Audish. Now, She's written a book that was called In Shock, My Journey from Death to Recovery and the Redemptive Power of Hope. She was your co-author on this article, right? Yes. So tell us about this doctor and this book. I have not read the book, but I've looked at some of the reviews and it sounds fascinating. It's uh, not only one of the best healthcare books
3: I've ever read in my my, uh, career, it's one of the best books I've ever read. I highly recommend this book. It's a beautiful book about a critical care uh, physician, ICU physician, specialist, uh, works at Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. She's seven months pregnant, and she's eating dinner out at a restaurant with a friend, and suddenly she has very sharp pains in her in her stomach, and they rush her to the ER. And it turns out that uh, she has a very serious condition related to her pregnancy. Uh, I won't spoil the story for those who will read the book, which I hope will be a lot of people listening to the show. Uh, but she wound up being a patient in her own hospital for months, a number of surgeries later, and she came very close to dying. In fact, one of the chapters in, the, in her book is about when she died, even mm-hmm. though she didn't. She came back close. Uh, and what's so powerful about this book, Tom, is you have a physician that's used to treating critically ill patients, an ICU physician, who herself becomes critically ill and has the experience of being a patient (laughs) and hearing everything that goes on, seeing everything goes on in her own hospital, and writing a really brave and honest book about what went right and what didn't go right. Mm -hmm. and she admits in her book I'll just finish with this story she admits in her book that she as a physician used to say a lot of the same things that she overheard as a patient that she would say that offended her Mm -hmm. such as you're trying to die on us or the patient is circling the drain and she used to say that and uh, her illness, her experience has changed the way she practices medicine.
2: Well, I would expect that's the title, Putting Healing Back at the Center of Healthcare, then that makes sense yes. that she would be your co-author.
3: Yes, she and I have written a lot. We've become very close friends. I, She's a brilliant, brilliant person, a, well, a wonderful writer.
2: Why do you propose, why does she propose that healing needs to be put back into healthcare?
3: Because we're losing sight of that in healthcare. Healthcare is becoming, uh, not in every health system but in many, too corporate, too businesslike, too financially driven, too fearful of the future. You know, if this political thing happens or that political thing happens, and uh, we're losing sight of the sacredness of healthcare. The healthcare is to heal. And when we talk, when we write about healing in this article, we write about healing more broadly. Healing isn't just about cure, because sometimes cure is impossible. Healing is about healing the patient holistically, healing the patient physically if possible, helping the patient heal emotionally, helping the patient heal spiritually. And so we write about healing uh, in Multiple dimensions rather than just as a physical uh, type of healing.
1: So, as you put it in your article, healthcare is becoming less focused on the intrinsic goal of healing and more on external forces that impede it, the forces that you just talked about. Yes. Now, uh, her, the title of her book again is In Shock My Journey from Death to, the Recover- to Recovery and the Redemptive Power of Hope. And I know you wanted to talk to us about the, the two different types of hope.
3: Yes, the type of hope that is most uh, familiar in healthcare is hope that we call focused hope. And focused hope is focused on the future, a future goal, the goal of remission or the goal of cure, the goal of getting my life back to where it was before I got sick. That's focused hope. And in healthcare, that's the oftentimes the only kind of hope we think about, which is unfortunate because if cure isn't possible, if remission from a cancer isn't possible, then um, we fear, oftentimes as physicians, uh, we fear that the patient will give up hope if we can't really uh, cure the patient physically. So that's focused hope. That's focused hope. But in fact, there's, uh, there's several different kinds of hope that a physician can help a patient and a family gravitate to over time. It's not easy, it's not an easy journey. And the type of hope uh, that's possible, even if cure isn't, we call intrinsic hope. And intrinsic hope is centered on the present. It's more of a reflective type of hope, hope for a good day. Hope for seeing my grandchildren today. Hope for uh, eating a delicious dinner that my spouse prepares, my favorite dinner at my, in my home today, rather than being in the hospital. So intrinsic hope, when people are seriously ill, becomes a really powerful form of healing. When cure is impossible, But Tom, people are alive until they're not. And we can do such a better job in healthcare in helping people live higher quality days of life as long as they're alive. And that's what intrinsic hope is about. And finally, there's a third type of hope, uh, an even higher level of hope. And we call that uh, freedom hope, hope for freedom. And that's when someone is so seriously ill and in so much pain and the family is in so much pain, emotional pain, that it's just time to free the patient, free the patient from the hospital, free the patient from all the treatments, free the patient from the pain, and free the family. And so uh, we think of hope in multiple dimensions, not just hope for cure. So
1: inspiring to listen to you. Thank you. Dr. Len Berry, Distinguished Professor of Marketing at Texas A&M University and an expert and respected authority on healthcare delivery, with great advice for anyone involved in the care of uh, patients. Number one, all patients need healing, and number two, nowhere is kindness more important than in caring for patients with cancer. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Barry. Thank you.
2: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, preventing wrist injuries in tennis players.
1: And we'll learn about the Life Sciences Incubator at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida.
2: And now with the latest health and medical news, here's Vivian Williams.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. In mid-May, the World Health Organization released guidelines to help people reduce their risk of cognitive decline and dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Ronald Peterson, director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, was part of the panel of experts who created the guidelines. Dr. Peterson says the WHO guidelines are primarily intended to instruct people, doctors, and societies on what they can do with their lifestyle to reduce the likelihood of developing cognitive impairment in the future. He has a few things that you can do that may not prevent Alzheimer's disease, but may delay its onset and slow its progression if it develops. Number one is physical activity. Do moderate aerobic exercise. That's 150 minutes a week. So 50 minutes three times or 30 minutes five times. Do things like vigorous walking, swimming, jogging, stuff like that. Number two is staying intellectually active. And number three is diet. Dr. Peterson says most people recommend the Mediterranean diet, so eat a diet full of fruits and veggies, fish, healthy oils like olive oil, whole grains, and less meat and saturated fat. He says as we gain more information about our lifestyle over our general health, he thinks it's important to realize that the brain is also in that picture. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, it doesn't matter what sport you play, there are always injuries to deal with. Interesting fact, about 25% of all sports-related injuries involve the hand or the wrist, and the sport of tennis has more than its share. The hand and wrist form that critical or crucial link between the body and the racket. And they're prone to injury because of the stresses that are involved, big stresses.
2: If only there were a way to prevent those injuries to the rest of the tennis players' face. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, wait, maybe there is. (laughs) Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic orthopedic upper extremity surgeon, Dr. Sanj Kakar, and sometimes co-host, and Dr. Ken Kaufman, a biomechanical (laughs) engineer and director of the Motion Analysis Laboratory at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to you both.
4: Thanks for having us, Tom and Tracy. Thank you.
1: Good to see you both. It's the Doctors Kakar and Kaufman Show. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So how did the two of you, by the way, thanks for being here. How did the two of you get interested in wrist injuries in tennis players?
4: Well, as you know, Tom, one of the beauties of working at Mayo Clinic is there's many people who are far cleverer than you. And so I would see uh, an epidemic of this in the hand practice, especially during tennis events when we see the United States Open. Uh, the first major of the year, the Australian Open, and we'd have a lot of people coming in from the Weekend Warrior. But really what drove me was when I would see younger athletes come in, truly gifted players who were coming in with a lot of ulnar-sided wrist pain and injuries from tennis. Ulnar-sided? Ulnar-sided, so if you think of your wrist, if you think of the the uh, funny bone on the uh, by your pinky on that side, okay. we'd have a lot of patients with uh, pain in that area. And as you know, Mayo Clinic has a strong tradition of treating tennis players, and so we would see a lot of patients come in, and it would be frustrating in that these were highly gifted athletes, but would suffer a lot of injuries, especially during tennis.
1: So you said to yourself, why is this happening? Correct. And and what can we do to to prevent it?
4: Yes, because we would see patients that we would treat non-operatively, wouldn't get better, we'd have to operate on patients, and they would be young, they would be 14, 15, 16, and that's that's a lot of trauma to the wrist at such a young age.
1: And how did you get Dr. Kaufman involved,
4: biomechanical engineer? Well, as you know, Dr. Kaufman is a world expert in biomechanical uh, principles and uh, has done a lot, for example, in baseball, and so I, I simply, over a coffee, said, uh, Dr. Kaufman, we have this problem, how can, uh, how can we help, how can you help us?
5: And what did you say? I said we'd be happy to help. Um, we do a lot of studies of humans moving, and this is just another aspect of what we do. So what, you, well,
2: what is it that humans are doing when they're playing tennis that causes this problem?
5: Well,
4: there's, there's a few causes of why patients have uh, problems, especially not, not just tennis, but in terms of racket sports. Number one is their mechanics are poor. Um, you know, some, some of the athletes haven't had proper coaching. Uh, the equipment can be poor. It can be hand-me-downs from a, an older sibling or, or a, a, um, a parent. And also now, if you see, there's 75 million tennis players in the world and a lot of these are the younger age groups and they're hitting balls for excessive number of hours that their body simply isn't used to as they're growing. So there is a a multitude of reasons for why we're seeing this. You're saying mostly it's overuse? It tends to be mostly overuse, yes, and it can be pertaining to how your grip is. There's certain grips, for example, an eastern grip and the way you grip your racket will give you pain on the side of your thumb. A Western grip will give you pain on the small finger side of your wrist. So simple grip changes can affect where you get injuries.
1: And is this where Dr. Kaufman came in?
4: Yeah, so Dr. Kaufman will speak much more eloquently than I can in this, but he has an amazing ability in his lab and his team at really capturing down the tennis stroke to the minutiae of detail that one needs to see what's happening at that split second for when you're hitting the ball. So tell us
5: about that, Dr. Kaufman. What have you figured out? Well, we're just starting our program with Dr. Kakar, so we um, are just uh, trying to build the program. But uh, from what we understand about the tennis stroke, people who are experienced have a different mechanics when they hit the, the ball versus people who are don't have that experience, and that leads to the injuries. So, for example, the people that are experienced tend to do eccentric con- or concentric contractions uh, when they're hitting the ball, whereas people who are not experienced do eccentric contractions, which tend to dam- damage the muscle more. Do you know what that means? No. Me neither. Can you explain that? <laughs> so a concentric contraction means as the muscle is contracting, it's getting shorter. Eccentric means as the muscle is contracting, it's getting longer. So if we we're, if we're have full force on the muscle and we're stretching the muscle, it's causing the muscle fibers to tear. And is this, is this a problem
1: for
4: tennis players, muscle tears? Uh, it's m- mainly tendon tears. So the muscle is the power that's pulling the rope, if you think of the rope as the tendon. So we lo- see a lot of, for example, called extensor carpi ulnaris or ECU tendon problems, which is on the, ul- which is on the pinky side. So for example, with a top spin, or the double-handed backhand, these patients can have pain with this. And it was so apparent to us that we reached out to the United States Tennis Association and working with their scientific uh, committee, they've actually supported and endorsed our study, providing funding for us to do this at Mayo Clinic.
1: So you think if you teach people a better way to to grip the racket or a better way to, to use the racket that you can prevent some of these injuries?
4: yes but it depends on where we see these players Uh, ideally we want to get them when they're younger before they've learned these bad habits into their stroke because i think it's much harder for a seasoned uh, atp tour player to change their stroke and mechanics that's what's got them there in the first place to change this but the other advantage of this uh, research is that we don't know what normal is and so when we see players and we're trying to rehab them back to Uh, Their play from injury after surgery or before surgery. How do we do that? We don't have objective guidelines. So partnering with Dr. Kaufman and his team, we're now for the first time able to get objective guidelines and data as to what normal is. And then we can use that to try and help our injured athletes back to play. So you suggested that most
1: of the injuries that you see are implied that they're on the ulnar side, the the small finger side of the the wrist. What is the most common injury you see?
4: So I would say there's probably, uh, I would say it's an overuse phenomenon. And so when I think of that, I think of tendonitis. And I would say there's two main areas, namely on the uh, small finger side, the ECU tendon, and on the thumb side, uh, um, called de Quervain's tenosynovitis. I would say they're the most common injuries that we see.
1: Tendonitis, inflammation of the tendon caused by overuse. Correct. And you think that you can prevent that by changing the grip or telling them not to use it so much? Or or how do you prevent
4: it? Yeah, so it's a multifactorial answer. I think number one, proper mechanics. Uh, learning how to hold the tennis racket properly secondly proper equipment and thirdly with some of this information that we're learning from dr. Kaufman for example the double-handed backhand that has taken over the sport but if a lot of our junior athletes are doing this incorrectly at the time of impact whereby the most seasoned coach can't see that because it's a split-second thing that's how we can use this data to guide uh, the uh, stroke and the return to play are you saying Possibly
2: everyone who plays tennis needs to change the way they hold the racket? Is that no, what you're saying? No, not
4: everybody. I mean, if you're out there playing with no problems, I think it's fine. But I think what spurned this, uh, this interest of mine is seeing the younger athletes come in with problems and injuries. And, you know, when I was 10, 11, n- never did I have an overuse type of injury. But now, how many children are out there playing racket sports over and over and over again, or stick sports, be that hockey, be that baseball, be that tennis? Be that cricket, Tracy, the second most popular sport in the world.
1: I know, you're a big fan. (laughs) Do you think part of the problem is early
4: specialization? So a
1: kid, instead of playing multiple sports, starts playing tennis and more tennis when they're 8, 10, 11,
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And when I spoke to the the USTA, they actually endorse players playing multiple sports. They specialize way too early, and so this is something they should be specializing later in their teenage years, as opposed to eight, nine, or ten.
1: And it sounds like maybe you, along with the USTA, ought to uh, give some instruction to coaches as well as young players.
4: That's a, gr- that's a great point, and we've actually reached out to our coaches at the uh, Rochester Athletic Club, and they've been instrumental in coming along and seeing what we're doing. They've actually taken part themselves uh, to help sort of guide us to learn about this as we move forward.
1: Wrist injury is very common in tennis players, and both of you are doing a great job not only in seeing these patients and taking care of them, but also trying to prevent injuries in the future. Thanks so much to both of you for being with us, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Sanj Kakar, and biomechanical engineer and director of the Motion Analysis Lab, Dr. Ken Kaufman. Thanks much. Thanks for having us. Something new, something novel, something beneficial is always good, no matter what field you're in. And healthcare, I think, is no exception. Think about all the major advances that there have been in the field of medicine in the past few years. Vaccines, the heart-lung machine, organ transplants, mapping of the human genome, MRI scans, CT scans, and most of this actually happened in my lifetime. Well, not all of it. <laughs> now, you, somebody had to invent all of that, and none of it came without a lot of work, ingenuity, and, and some smarts, really.
2: Well, now Mayo Clinic is here to help. The Life Sciences Incubator in Jacksonville, Florida, facilitates the advancement of new ideas and products from the research lab through product development and into the clinic. The incubator helps design, nurture, and accelerate promising healthcare and life science companies that are focused on improving patient care. On the phone from Jacksonville, Florida, to tell us more about it is the director of the Mayo Clinic Bio Incubator, Mr. Vic Noel. Welcome to the program, Mr. Noel.
6: Thank you. How are you today? Good.
2: Good, Vic, and thanks so much
1: for uh, joining us. So let's start with, give us a quick introduction to the Life Science Incubator. What what are we really talking about?
6: Sure. So the Incubator is really a place that teaches the business process uh, to people who may not be business trained. So we work with uh, innovators and inventors uh, who are mainly working in the scientific, clinical, engineering fields and we teach them how to bring their ideas, new products, technologies to market.
1: And is this, uh, have you started doing this? Is the incubator open?
6: Uh, no, the incubator actually is, uh, still under construction. It's nearly completed. It's due to be turned over to us at the end of May. So we're hoping sometime between the 20th and the 30th of May, we'll be able to move into the building and start the program.
2: Do you have some candidates already ready to go?
6: Yes, we do. I've I've been pleasantly surprised. While we've been waiting for the facility to be done, we've been working hard on the program. And uh, we actually have a list of somewhere between 25 and 30 projects that have been brought to us already uh, and are ready for vetting. So I'm actually in the process of uh, hiring the staff. We're in the final phases of that. And we hope to have those folks in place by the end of May. Uh, And the first job that we will have is to start to work through that list of 25 or 30 potential projects to see what we can't get activated quickly.
2: How do you teach a doctor or a researcher or a medical mind person to become a business person? Think <laughs> like a businessman.
6: Well, actually, what we what we start with is something called Ideal Lab. And, and really, in the Ideal Lab, what we're trying to do is get whatever they have uh, from their heads onto a piece of paper. So typically, when folks come to us, they'll just have an idea or they'll have a challenge or an opportunity that they're thinking about In some cases, they may have a a crude product prototype uh, that they're working with. And so in Idea Lab, what we're trying to do is to identify the problem that they're trying to solve, um, understand what their solution is, and then start to quickly move uh, the idea onto paper, from paper into prototype, and then from prototype into business model. So as we're doing that, what we're doing is we're kind of teaching them Um, all the things, the fundamental things that they need to understand in order to build that business model. Things like assessing the market and looking at competitive dynamics and uh, actually doing the engineering on whatever their product or or their technology is, the customer validation. Uh, And typically how we do that is through a combination of uh, academic education um, that is supplemented with deep dives that uh, that are taught by subject matter experts that we bring into the incubator. And it's very important in our program to have student engagement as well. So typically what we'll do is bring in uh, MBA students, engineering students from outside uh, to help us to work on those projects as we're activating them.
1: And, and how many people work at your facility? And and how do you hire the people? I mean, it sounds like you need experts in, in a diverse number of fields.
6: Sure. So the, the core staff, when we open, will be five people. It'll be myself. I'll have a project portfolio manager. I'll have an operations manager who basically manages the space itself. We'll have a marketing person. Uh, and then we're connected to other Mayo Clinic resources as well. So we're connected very closely to the Office of Entrepreneurship. So that director will be located uh, in the incubator. Um, We have a liaison to Mayo Clinic Ventures who will be working with us and a liaison to the business development team. Uh, So in addition to that core team, what I've been doing over the last several months is to build an external network uh, of service providers that will help us as we're activating these projects as well. So people who have uh, expertise in, in legal accounting finance, marketing, regulatory, IT, uh, all of those fundamentals that uh, will be needed to develop a project to hopefully uh, eventually create a business. Uh, Those resources that aren't really resident on the Mayo Clinic campus uh, that we could easily pull in and out. Um, We've also found um, a a fair number of retired professionals in the Jacksonville mm -hmm. area who are interested in being mentors to some of these teams. And what I'm finding is that their industry networks are phenomenal. Uh, so our plan is to use that uh, that network of, of mentors as well to help us.
2: When this, when this happens, then does the idea become a Mayo Clinic's idea or does it become the person who thought of its idea or is it co-owned?
6: that's a great question. So one of the very first things that we do when people will come to the incubator is to, if they've got a great idea, is to ask them if they've disclosed. So if they're Mayo employees, the first thing that we want them to do is to disclose that idea to Mayo Clinic Ventures so that the intellectual property can be properly protected. Um, But we will also be working with groups that are external to Mayo and they will typically come in with their own intellectual property.
1: So is there an upfront cost to use your facility and your expertise, or do you get royalties if so, if they create a business out of this? Or how, how does the, the, the expenses work and the costs work?
6: Right. So it, the, the services are free to Mayo Clinic uh, employees. So again, I mean, they'll have already uh, disclosed to Mayo Clinic Ventures. And if we find that they have something that's commercially viable, um, whenever they actually capture value for whatever it is, a product or a technology or a business, Mayo Clinic Ventures will automatically be participating in that. So there's no fee to to employees to, to use the service. For those that are external, uh, they will have to have some kind of an agreement in place with Mayo Clinic. So not only w- will their work need to be aligned with Mayo Mission, they'll have to have uh, either a... Uh, A collaborative research agreement or a clinical trial agreement or a know-how agreement that allows them to uh, to access the services and um, in addition to that we'll be charging uh, rents uh, for uh, for the space we'll be charging fees for the services Um, so that's how we intend to capture value for externals
1: so you have 25 or 30 candidates who's going to pick
6: that's a great question. So we do have an advisory team that, that um, we've put together. For now, they're mostly um, senior level Mayo employees. But as we grow the incubator, we'll supplement that with some of these external partners as well.
1: All right. Life Science Incubator, we've been talking with the director of the Mayo Clinic Bio Incubator, Mr. Vic Knoll from Jacksonville, Florida. Mr. Knoll, thanks so much for being with us and and all the best.
6: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
0: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org.